0: Welcome to Silicon Valley Trends, a free podcast series published by Silicon Valley Business School. I'm your host, David Smith. At Silicon Valley Business School, we provide affordable, real-world, online business education to everyone everywhere, and guide entrepreneurs towards success with their startup ventures. This episode is about Elvis Presley, his father Vernon, his prospective mother-in-law, Joe Laverne Alden, a cup of sweet tea, and a man being awarded $8 billion, with a B, for growing breasts. Yes, this is an episode about contracts. This might not be the type of introduction you would get to a contracts course at law school, where they try to make learning simple things as painful as possible. But in this podcast, you're going to learn many of the most important things you need to know about contracts. Before you run away thinking law is for lawyers, please consider two things. Firstly, this episode is designed for normal people, not attorneys. Secondly, contracts are essential to business. If you're going to be a success in business, you need to be able to sell things, buy things, and negotiate deals. All these essential elements of business involve contracts. You won't have a lawyer with you all the time you're doing business and forming contracts. And as you'll learn, you won't always need a lawyer. Lawyers can be helpful, but you can often write better contracts when you don't have a lawyer involved. This episode draws from materials in the Silicon Valley Business School Contracts course and covers the essential things you need to know when forming your own contracts. Now let's talk about Elvis. Here we go. Elvis Presley was engaged to a woman named Ginger Alden. Ginger's mother, Joel Laverne, was getting a divorce, and Elvis, having been through a divorce himself, told Joel Laverne that he would pay off the mortgage on the family home so that she wouldn't lose the house as a result of the divorce. But before he could pay off the mortgage, Elvis died. Joel Laverne subsequently asked Vernon Presley, Elvis's father, and the executor of his estate to go ahead and honor Elvis's commitment and pay the mortgage. But Vernon refused. Joel Laverne then sued Vernon Presley in court to enforce the contract. So what do you imagine was the outcome of the court case? Would the court force jo- Vernon to pay off Joe Laverne's mortgage with Elvis's money? Well, they did not. The court decided that no contract had been formed. Poor Jo Laverne was lumbered with the mortgage. Vernon won the case, and Jo Laverne was left with legal fees from her lawyers as well as the mortgage. You see, one key component for a contract was missing from Jo Laverne's story. Jo Laverne wasn't giving anything up. Elvis essentially promised her a gift. This is not a promise that will be enforced by a court. Now, if Elvis had said, I'd really like to help you out so you don't lose the house. I could pay off the mortgage for you. And Joe Laverne had said, I'll give you a cup of my sweet tea, Elvis, if you pay off the mortgage. Then Elvis said, it's a deal. And Joe Laverne gave him the cup of tea. Then we would have a contract. The missing piece was the cup of tea. the promise of the cup of tea. You see, a contract requires an exchange. An exchange of promises will usually form a contract. Elvis's promise was not supported by an act or promise from Joel Laverne, so it was merely a promise of a gift, not a contract. But for the cup of tea, the court would have forced Vernon to use Elvis's money to pay off Joel Laverne's mortgage. When looking at whether a contract has been formed, the court will look for an offer from one of the parties, acceptance of the offer from the other party, and what they refer to as consideration, which is something being provided in exchange. In our case here, the cup of tea, or the promise of the cup of tea, would act as consideration for Elvis's promise to pay off the mortgage. Now you're probably thinking that there's some imbalance here, A cup of tea doesn't have anything like the same value as a mortgage on a house. Back in the 1970s money, the mortgage would be probably in tens of thousands of dollars, and the tea would be just a few cents. However, this would not stop the court from enforcing the contract and telling Vernon to stump up the cash to pay off the mortgage. You see, the court doesn't weigh up the value of each person's promise. If there was an offer, acceptance and consideration, the court will go ahead and enforce the contract, regardless of whether the exchange was considered fair and balanced. Joel Laverne's cup of sweet tea would have been sufficient to create a binding contract, forcing Elvis to pay off her mortgage, even if that meant him paying millions of dollars. Let's imagine Elvis had his tea and the court decided in favour of Joel Laverne what would have happened then? Well, the court would have forced Vernon to provide the cash to pay off the mortgage, as that was what had been promised. It would award Jo Laverne damages calculated at the amount she would have received if Elvis's promise had been fulfilled. So what about Jo Laverne's legal fees? Well, the court would calculate the damages such that it would put Jo Laverne in the position she'd be in if she hadn't had to go to court and if Elvis had paid off the mortgage. So the court would have forced Vernon to pay Joel Laverne's legal fees as well as sufficient money to discharge the mortgage. Now we get to talk about the man growing breasts. I was just reading a news story that Johnson & Johnson has been ordered by a court to pay a man $8 billion in punitive damages. Because the company failed to warn the man that an antipsychotic drug he was taking could lead to breast growth. The $8 billion dollars was intended to punish Johnson and Johnson to teach them a lesson. In the Elvis case, do you think the court could punish Vernon and force him to pay extra in order to teach him a lesson and punish him? It would not. It doesn't matter how badly Vernon behaved, or how Joe Laverne suffered, punitive damages are not available in contract law. You see, contract law is not intended to punish. It's simply designed to make sure contracts are fulfilled. Barter and exchange are so important for the operation of business and the economy that we can't afford to deter people from entering into contracts. The court will simply award damages Sufficient to put Jo Laverne in the position she would be in if the mortgage had been paid off. Jo Laverne has no chance of being awarded $8 billion unless she has a sex change, starts taking antipsychotic psychotic drugs, and grows unwanted breasts. If you're wondering whether Jo Laverne would have to show the court a written contract with Elvis's signature the answer is no. A contract can be formed verbally. It would be helpful that Joel Laverne took a witness to the court who could provide testimony about the discussion between Elvis and Joel Laverne, but contracts can be formed through conversation, exchange of email, text messages, and through all forms of communication. There are some rules that require written contracts for the sale of real estate or for goods over a certain value. But other than that, a fully binding contract can be formed without a writing. Having said that, Jo Laverne would have been in a stronger position if she'd had the contract written down and produced it in court. Verbal contracts can be enforced, but the vast majority of contract cases heard in court involve written agreements. Although some lawyers try to sound smart and like to bill for as many hours as they can, So they write contracts in flowery medieval English that is not necessary at all. In fact, contracts that are written in plain English are concise and ambiguous, are the most effective. Now let's say Elvis and Joe Laverne had decided to draw up a written contract. Would they need a lawyer or a notary public to give it the stamp of approval? No. Jo Laverne could have written it herself in pencil on the back of a napkin, and it would still form a binding agreement. But would Jo Laverne need to add language to the contract about things like which court would hear the case in case of dispute? What law would be applied? No. If the napkin simply said, I promised to give Elvis a cup of sweet tea in exchange for his promise to pay off my mortgage, and the napkin was signed by Elvis, that would be sufficient. She would not need to add all sorts of legal boilerplate provisions. They'll all be filled in by the court. Most of those provisions that are written by attorneys are unnecessary. They're there to make the attorney look smart and to bill the client more hours. All right, now that we've covered the basics of contracts, Let me share with you some of my experiences with them. I was in business for some time before I went through law school. So I have experience of contracts as a non-lawyer and as a lawyer myself. The first experience I I should share with you is not a good one. I was negotiating a deal with my friend who was the CEO of a dot-com company. And because we were friends, I had my guard down. I didn't read the contract thoroughly enough before I signed it and found to my horror that my friend's lawyer had slipped in some nasty provisions that were inserted after I'd reviewed the draft but before the contract was signed. As a young entrepreneur many years before law school I used to be intimidated by contracts not by the short ones written in plain English but the long, complicated documents filled with words like heretofore, they used to seem like they were too much to understand. I did learn, though, that it's worthwhile taking the time to read them and really understand what's going on. They might look daunting, but they're not when you change your attitude and start actually reading them, making notes and translating the legalese into simple English. I found that I could score some big wins and strong positions by just reading the contracts and then negotiating terms. As a Silicon Valley startup CEO, I did a deal with a huge media company where I was negotiating the terms of a contract with a big law firm attorney in Los Angeles. The contract was seriously about 70 pages long. I think it was 76 or something like that. Lots of billable hours on that one. The agreement involved the media company paying my company several million dollars so that we could use this money to develop a new software product. In exchange, the media company would get exclusive rights to distribute the product. The 70-page agreement was filled with all sorts of legal nonsense, but hidden in there was a provision that said the media company would have exclusive distribution rights for two years only. After that, the company would offer no distribution and we would have to negotiate a new contract. I was perplexed. This company was paying for the development of a new product, paying for distribution for the first couple of years. and Then after that, the product, after the products become established, they would give up all their rights. This might make sense when you're distributing a movie as they do in L.A. and Hollywood, as the movie rights have lost their value after two years. But it made no sense at all for a product, a software product that tends to get more valuable after the initial bugs have been worked out and new features have been added as the product matured. So I went ahead, signed the agreement, After the two years were up, the vice president of the company called me up, saying that he and his staff were all going to be fired unless we found a way to overcome this huge problem they discovered in the contract. After investing several million dollars in development and marketing, they realized they had no rights to continue. We terminated the distribution agreement, but agreed to take on his team. In our company, we hired them and we gave the media companies some stock. We didn't have to, but it was the right thing to do under the circumstances with the relationships that we'd built up with these individuals. This reminds me a little bit of Microsoft and Bill Gates, who outmaneuvered IBM in 1980. Bill Gates was not afraid of contracts. His father was a prominent lawyer. When IBM came along, and hired Microsoft to build its new operating system, which they would call IBM PC-DOS, Gates included a clause in the agreement that allowed Microsoft to sell the operating system to other companies under the name MS-DOS, Microsoft DOS. IBM either didn't notice the provision or didn't think any other PC manufacturers were capable of competing with them, but this led to Microsoft licensing DOS, and subsequently Windows, to companies like Dell, Hewlett-Packard, and a whole industry of PC manufacturers. This sentence in the IBM-Microsoft contract changed the whole course of the PC industry, which became dominated by Microsoft rather than IBM, and led to Bill Gates becoming the richest man in the world. Whether you have a lawyer representing you or not, I highly recommend you read the fine print on the contract and negotiate terms before signing. That goes for all types of contracts, even some that might seem innocuous. Non-disclosure agreements are commonplace in Silicon Valley and working in the patent field we have to deal with them all the time. They might seem quite standard and boilerplate, but they often have nasty provisions that survive for many years expose you to unlimited liability i recently received a confidentiality agreement that defined all information as being confidential the contract was between a tech startup and a marketing agency if this marketing company had gone ahead and signed the agreement then went on to run advertising and promotions for the client it would have been in violation of the confidentiality agreement and the client could have sued the agency for breach of contract for doing the job it was hired to perform. The company said it had been using the contract template for years and no one had mentioned it before. That just goes to show that people don't read NDAs. It doesn't matter how many times the template's been used before, there's no such thing as a boilerplate contract. They all need to be carefully studied and often need to be amended if you're going to avoid costly liabilities and mistakes. This goes for form contracts pre-printed in minute font size on a pre-printed form. If you get a printed agreement and you cross out a provision or write in a term by hand, your handwritten edits actually trump the terms on the printed form, so long as you write them in before you add your signature. When you're editing a contract, it's good manners to make it clear to the other side what language you've changed. When you turn on the track changes feature in your word processor, then make edits, all your changes will be marked up in red. This is what's referred to as a red line version. I'd be very careful about doing business with anyone who tries to sneak edits into the agreement without telling you about them. This brings me on to the important topic of trust. If you trust the person you're doing business with, the contract can be very short and simple. The written contract is essentially there to make sure there are no misunderstandings between you. If you're doing business with someone you don't know, the trust might not be there and the contract might need to cover every possible eventuality, describing the duties of the parties in great detail. The lower the trust, the longer the contract. So how do you write a contract for a person you don't trust at all? Well I say you don't. A thousand page contract is not going to protect you. If you don't trust the other party, I say don't do any business with them. In the patent brokering business I've had to deal with literally thousands of contracts. An engagement with a patent seller will likely start with a confidentiality agreement, then move on to an engagement agreement. Then confidentiality agreements need to be entered into with all the potential buyers before we get to patent purchase agreements, license agreements, and other agreements that are dealt with in the closing. I've learned that where I have problems agreeing terms of the confidentiality agreement at the beginning of the discussion, this is a sign of things to come in the relationship with the client. If the person is unreasonable in negotiating a simple agreement, this is a red flag and I've learned to run away from these situations, and these clients, potential clients. You really get to know people when you work together on an important transaction. Some people you find are trustworthy and a pleasure to deal with. Others are not. Over the years, I've learned to spot the warning signs early on and avoid working with the problem cases. Let me give you an example. I was approached by a lawyer who had some patents he was looking to sell. I sent him our broker engagement agreement, which essentially said, when we broker a deal for you, bringing you a buyer that acquires your patents, you agree to pay us a commission calculated as a percentage of the sale price. The lawyer then asked me for all the marketing materials we had on our company. I sent him several documents and referred him to our website. As there are several books on our Tinax.com website and all sorts of information, he had thousands of pages of materials on our company. He then added a representations and warranties provision to the engagement agreement, saying that he was entering the contract reliant upon my guarantee that all the information in the material was accurate. In one move and a single line of text, he'd turned our one-page contract into a contract comprising thousands of pages by incorporating all these materials through his new representation and warranties provision. With his contract amendment, he was creating a situation where we could perform our duties, working for some time to bring him a buyer Who acquires his patents, but giving him the ability to escape having to pay our commission by pointing to a minor inaccuracy somewhere in the thousands of pages of material. He was creating a loophole that would enable him to weasel out of paying our fees after we'd done our job and brokered the sale of his patents. There's no point doing business with anyone like that, especially if you're working today on the promise of a payment tomorrow. I found that the way people negotiate contracts is a good insight into their character. I'm very careful with representations and warranties provisions as they can be used to circumvent the essential nature of the contract. Imagine if Elvis had said to Joel Laverne, I'll pay off your mortgage if you give me a cup of your sweet tea, but only if you represent and warrant that all the information in the Library of Congress is accurate. Elvis would simply have to point to an inaccuracy in one of the millions of books in the Library of Congress to get out of paying a dime, regardless of whether he received the sweet tea or not. When we use words like representations and warranties, you might think we're straying into the world of lawyers. Of course we are, and it's always a good idea to have a lawyer represent you when entering a contract. But as I mentioned it is possible to negotiate and write your own contracts even if you're dealing with a lawyer on the other side, so long as you take the time to read and understand the terms of the agreement. It's useful to understand what motivates lawyers. Of course, they're motivated by money, and they're often under intense pressure to bill clients for as many hours as they can get away with, but they're also motivated by the threat of malpractice. Don't be surprised if you experience the following situation when negotiating against a lawyer who's representing a client. You send the lawyer a contract draft that's pretty reasonable, and you receive back a marked up version that has all sorts of provisions that are totally unreasonable and impossible for you or anyone in their right mind to accept. For example, imagine if Elvis had told his lawyer that he wanted to pay off Joel Laverne's mortgage and instructed the lawyer to draw up a contract. Instead of a one-page contract saying, Elvis agrees to pay off the mortgage in exchange for a cup of Joel Laverne's sweet tea, the lawyer produces a 20-page document requiring representations and warranties from Joel Laverne and requiring that Elvis has an option to buy the house back for at any time for $1. Joel Laverne would then have to pay a lawyer to review the contract, removing the offensive provisions, and sending it back to Elvis's attorney, who will then enter into a back and forth exchange of markup edits. Of course, Elvis's lawyer is loving this as it's generating billable hours and he's milking Elvis for his, his hourly fees. But there's another motivation that's driving the lawyer to add all sorts of provisions that will never be accepted by Joe Laverne. He's looking to avoid any claims of malpractice by his client Elvis. I've seen this many times. I've seen lawyers add provisions to contracts that are clearly unacceptable and clearly undermine the essential bargain at the heart of the trade, then immediately remove them when they are challenged. They add crazy provisions in, then they're happy to remove them. I realize that they're just covering their backs. If the client comes back later on and says, why didn't the contract give us ownership of the other party's firstborn child, the lawyer can say, well, I requested it, but it was negotiated out of the deal. Creating long, overly complicated contracts and spending time negotiating out the totally unreasonable provisions has the double impact of generating more billable hours and protecting the attorney for claims of malpractice. When you're writing your own contracts, you're typically looking to close a deal as quickly as possible. You're not looking to maximize the number of hours you spend on it and you're not looking to protect yourself from a claim of professional malpractice. If you know what you're doing, you can write short, sweet contracts and get the deal closed. If I'd done this myself in the dot-com boom time, I'd be super wealthy today. I got to know the founder of a dot-com startup and we got along. We both had dot-com startups, similar stage of development. He called me one Sunday morning, suggesting that we each swap 10% of our shares. He explained that it was a hedge. If we each held shares in each each other's companies, we wouldn't have all our eggs in one basket. I said I'd talk to my wife. He persistently called me, and we decided to do the deal. He had his lawyer send over a contract. It was just two pages long. I sent it to my lawyer. That was the mistake that wakes me up at night to this day. My lawyer sent a markup over to the other lawyer and I got on with running my startup. About three months later, I met with my lawyer about another topic. He told me he had the contract for the share swap, but he'd forgotten to tell me about it. He said the contract was fine and it just needed to be signed. I was a bit perplexed as to why he hadn't told me three months earlier when he received the document from the other attorney. But I called the other founder and he said his company has already filed for its IPO and the investment bankers have told him he can't change any of the share structure. The IPO was in process, the S1 had been filed and it was too late. The next time I saw him, the IPO had gone ahead and his shares were worth three billion dollars. My shares would have been worth 300 million dollars. I had the paper sitting on my desk without a signature on it. It was so frustrating. It was a painful experience as you can imagine. My lawyer didn't only slow the whole deal down but killed it altogether and this has taken me some time to come to terms with. This was of course before I went to law school. At that point, I put lawyers into two categories before I was at law school, but when I was doing business and trying to get deals done. The ones that would help me close the deal and the ones that would put barriers in the way and prevent me from getting deals closed. There were deal makers and deal killers. Then I went to law school and I was shocked to find that they focus on teaching lawyers how to kill deals. But in Attorneys are trained to look for reasons they should prevent the contract being signed. To protect themselves from malpractice claims, lawyers are trained to point out all the potential liabilities and problems with a proposed contract. They don't get sued for losing business for the company when they recommend against a contract, but they can be sued for malpractice for approving a contract that actually gets signed. There are some deal maker attorneys out there. I did find some, but the vast majority I would put into the deal killer category, especially those working in large law firms where the partners and associates are under intense pressure and scrutiny. Now that I've been writing my own contracts for many years, I've learned some useful tricks. The first one is to keep the contract as short as possible. One page is better than two. I also make it very simple and understandable. I find that many of the people I'm contracting with will negotiate the contract themselves and avoid hiring an attorney if the contract is short, simple, and understandable. Where I receive a form contract or a template that the other parties used many times, but I'm not comfortable with some of the provisions, I've found that if my edits are written in as few words as possible, And the document doesn't appear to have changed radically my edits are more often accepted for example if i get a two-page confidentiality agreement written in 10 point times roman with two columns i make sure that the edited version i send back even with the markup clearly indicated looks very similar to the original two-page two-column document in 10 point times roman font if I sent back a three-page document written in another font with a single column of text, my edits would be less likely to be accepted. The edited document that looks very similar to the original is more likely to get signed. Strange but true. Now when it comes to signing contracts. Since the e law was introduced in the United States in the year 2000, an electronic signature has been just as good as a signature written in wet ink virtually all the thousands of contracts i've signed in the years since 2000 have been as pdf documents with digital signatures there are several ways of signing a document electronically i like to add a scanned image of my handwritten signature pdf documents are exchanged with signatures and the contract is formed the only exception Where I've actually had to fly papers back and forth across the Pacific has been where I've been entering contracts with companies in Japan and other countries, where paper and wet ink signatures are still revered as being more valid than an electronic copy. A company can't sign an agreement itself, as a company doesn't have fingers, hands, arms, legs to bind a company and form a contract. The document has to be signed by a human authorised agent of the company. This leads us into agency law, which we'll cover in another episode. But an agent can be authorised by the company in several ways. When the shareholders appoint the board of directors, they're essentially appointing the board as agents for the shareholders. But no one director has the power to bind the company. The board of directors has to act as a whole so an argument can be made that an individual member of the board of directors does not have agency powers to bind the company to a contract. When the board appoints a CEO, it provides the CEO with some agency powers and the CEO can usually bind the company to any form of contract that is within the regular scope of the company's day-to-day operations. Decisions that are outside of the regular scope of business, like a change in business strategy, need approval by the board of directors Decisions that involve a sale of all, or essentially all, the company's assets require approval by the shareholders. If you're unsure whether the person signing the contract on behalf of the company has the agency powers to bind the company to the contract, you need to check with the company for confirmation. If you're entering a contract and the person signing on behalf of the company is called John Doe, and the CEO of the company confirms to you that John Doe does have authority to sign on the company's behalf, then you're pretty safe, as the company can't effectively argue later on that the contract is not binding due to lack of authority on the part of John Doe. But now that we're talking about agency and the powers of company officers, directors, and shareholders, we're straying beyond contract law, into topics that we'll discuss in more detail in other podcasts when we draw from the contents of our agency and business organization courses. So we've learned that the court won't enforce Elvis's promise of a gift, but if Joel Laverne had offered him an exchange for a cup of her sweet tea, the court would have awarded her sufficient damages to pay off a mortgage and cover her legal fees so that Jo Laverne would be placed in the position she would have been in if Elvis had fulfilled his promise under contract law. Without the element of exchange, known as consideration, there was no contract. We learned that the idea of enforcing contracts is to encourage commerce, not to punish the contracting parties. You might be able to get an award of $8 billion from Johnson & Johnson for growing unwanted breasts under product liability and tort law. But if you want an award of $8 billion from J&J under contract law, you need a contract with the company promising you $8 billion. There are compensatory damages, but no punitive damages under contract law. We've learned the pros and cons of having lawyers draw up contracts on your behalf. And hopefully you've learned that it's a good idea to read and understand contracts before you enter into them. This episode draws from materials in our Silicon Valley Business School Contracts course. For more information, check out the online course catalog on the svbs.co website. We also have courses on agency and business organizations that cover the related topics in some detail. You're welcome to join me in my Silicon Valley Business School chat room where I can answer your questions. You'll see that we have other experts on the SVBS.co website. You can easily book a one-to-one video conference if you have any specific questions. I hope you'll join us for future podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so you get new episodes as and when they're released. And please rate us in your podcast player as this will help us to get the word out to entrepreneurs and the other people we're trying to help with this podcast series. That's it for today. Hope you tune in to the next Silicon Valley Trends, the podcast for innovators and entrepreneurs.